importance of the local church. And I did so by making some associations or doing, if you will, a bit of triangulation. I tried to show you that there are certain truths that I know are important to you as a Christian. And then to show the connection between those truths and the church. So if these truths are important and the church is connected to these things, the church must be important to you. Let me use another illustration. About 10 years ago, Mark Rain and I became friends. Right, Mark? And I came to find out that long before that, that Mark was a friend of Gary's. So if Mark and I are friends, and Gary and Mark are friends, is it likely that Gary and I would be friends? He would say, yes. And we are, aren't we, Gary? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. They have such a loving friendship, they can even joke with each other. But here's the point. If, if I'm friends with truth A, and truth A is connected to truth B, the church, then I'm friends of, of the church. If you are committed to certain things as important, and those things are intertwined with the church, then the church must be important to you. And I noted ten things that I know are important to you as a Christian. The work of Jesus Christ, the special presence of God and Christ, the saving love of Christ, the family of God, the truth of God, the glory of God, the wisdom of God, the saving plan of God, the launching pad for the worldwide work of God and the goal of the worldwide church of God. All of these things register with you as important things, right? Well, in each case, I tried to show you that each of these is vitally connected with the church. And I hope I was successful in convincing you that therefore the church must be important to you. But my aim this morning is to go a little beyond that. And not only to say that the church is important to you, or ought to be, but you actually ought to be a member of a local church. Not simply a casual attender, not even a committed attender, but, so to speak, a card-carrying, sign-on-the-dotted-line member of a local church. Now, I started with the importance of the local church because why would you want to be a member of something that isn't important, right? There are a lot of clubs in society that I'm not interested in joining. The Lions Club, the Rotary Club, the Moose Lodge, they may be doing good things, but they haven't impressed themselves upon me as something so important to me that I need to join them. Um, I like to bass fish but I'm not so committed to bass fishing so as to join the local bass club. And yes, there are local bass clubs, fishermen, bass boats, and they're really into it. I like bass fishing, but I'm not going to join a bass club. I'm not that into it. I'm not a hunter. We do own guns, but I'm not so into guns as to be a a member of the NRA. Um, I'm half Italian, but I was never... Uh, interested in joining the Italian club in Downingtown, which at least there was one some years ago. I like sports, but I'm not enough of a fanatic to get a season's ticket for the Phillies, the Eagles, or the 76ers. Now, I don't have anything against these clubs or organizations. They're good in their own right, but their importance hasn't impressed itself upon me so as to incline me to join. And it's similar with the church. If you don't value the church as important, why in the world would you want to join one? I remember several years ago, I think it was a Lutheran pastor in New York, 
city. And he was peeved with the fact that when people wanted to get married, they wanted to get married in a church building. At that time, the New York Mets were playing in Shea Stadium. And he reasoned like this. He said, I'm not a real Mets fan. It doesn't ruin my day when the New York Mets lose. It doesn't make my day when the Mets win. Why in the world would I want to get married in Shea Stadium? And his point was, if I care nothing about God or Jesus Christ, why, when it comes to get married, do I want to get married in a church building? And he was a little peeved by that. So someone might say, okay, okay, look, I, I get it, Pastor. The church is important, and the church needs to have some place in my life. But church membership? Do I really need to be a member of the church? Can't I just go to church? Well, the answer is, you can do anything you well please. But I do believe that if you would be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are lines of biblical reasoning that should lead us to the fact that, no, we ought to be a committed member of a local church. Now, a seasoned pastor that I have greatly respected once said, he who asserts must prove. You make an assertion, you need to prove it. And I'm going to try to prove it to you as to why you and I need to be a member of a local church. And I have nine reasons but they're all on your outline. First of all, the descriptions of the church point to committed church membership. How is the church described in the New Testament? Well, the church is a family. 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is called the household of God. Well, guess what? Family members need to be connected, attached, relating, and interacting with one another. The church is also called a nation, 1 Peter 2. It's a holy nation. Well, the citizens of a nation are bound by a common constitution. The church is a flock, Acts 20. Paul says, be on guard for all the flock of God over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, one sheep over here, one sheep over there is not a flock, is it? A flock is a group of, of sheep that are gathered together. They graze together. They feed together. They move together. That's a flock, and the church is called a flock. The church is a body. You know, in 1 Corinthians 12, the body is one and yet has many members. He's talking about the church. Now, an eyeball over there and an ear over here and a hand over here and a foot over there, that's not a body, is it? That's a mutilation. A body has parts that are connected and, and interdependent on one another. The church is a building. And you are all living stones. Peter describes the church as living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Now a stone over here and a stone over here. Or a pile of rubble. That's not a building. But stones that are connected to each other in some sort of orderly way. That's a building. And so, none of these things exist except there be connection. If you're a Christian, you're a living stone and you need to be part of a building. If you're a sheep, you need to be part of some flock. If you're a body part, you need to be attached to other body parts that are interdependent. If you are a brother or sister, you need to be part of a local family. So the descriptions of the church point to committed church membership. Secondly, the great commission of Jesus Christ points to committed church membership. I think you all know the great commission from Matthew 28. Jesus, before he went back to heaven, he said, going, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them 
and then teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. The main activity, make disciples. What do you do with disciples? You baptize them. What do you do with baptized disciples? They are to be taught all that I commanded. Now, where are they to be taught? And by whom are they to be taught? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says this, and God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Where has God put teachers to teach his disciples all that he commanded in the church? So if you're going to obey Jesus in the Great Commission to be taught all that, to observe all that he commanded, you need to go where the teachers are. And he gave teachers to his church. And so that's why you need to be part of a local church to be taught for the rest of your days by God-appointed teachers, all that Jesus commanded. Here's a third reason. The example of the early church points to committed church membership. You might turn for a couple of minutes to Acts chapter 2. The example of the early church points to committed church membership. Now, the apostles had the words of Jesus ringing in their ears. Going, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, and then he goes off to heaven. And then, 40 days later, he sends the Holy Spirit upon them on the day of Pentecost, which is the coming of the the Holy Spirit in his new covenant presence. On that day of Pentecost, recorded here in Acts 2, Peter, representing the apostles, gets up and preaches. He preaches because that's the way you make disciples, by preaching. As a result, 3,000 people are convicted. It says in verse 37 that um, those who heard this were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So, according to Jesus' command, Peter preaches, disciples are made, What do they do with those disciples? Verse 41 says, So then those who had received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Then what is to be done with baptized disciples? Well, they're remembering what Jesus said. Go, make disciples, baptizing them. Ah, teaching them. And so the very next verse says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They're following the script perfectly. They're following the command of the Lord Jesus. And the result is the mother church in Jerusalem. This was the birth of the church. And that group of 3,000 constituted the first church, the first local church. In fact, it's called a church In Acts 15, when they have the Jerusalem council and they make a decision, it says it seemed good to the apostles and elders together with the whole church. That was the mother church. It was a local church. Fourthly, the organization of the church points to committed church membership. Now, let me be clear. The church is not primarily an organization. It is primarily an organism. You know the difference. An organism is a living thing. And the church is is a living thing. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God lives in each one of you. And together we are a living organism throbbing with the the life of God within us. Like I said, it's it's like no other organization. We're not here based on social bonds or family bonds. We're together based on supernatural bonds. 
fellowship in the spirit. And so the church is primarily an organism. It's a living thing, but it has organization. All the elements of organization are true of the church. It has planned meetings. We read in Acts 20, verse 7, when we had gathered together on the first day of the week to break bread. And 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 tells us that the church gathered on the first day of the week. That's why we gather on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day on which Jesus was raised. So there were organized, planned meetings. There were elections in Acts chapter 1. Before the day of Pentecost, they get together to decide who is going to replace Judas as an apostle. In Acts chapter 6, when they need deacons to care for these widows, they say, look out among you and choose seven men full of the Holy Spirit whom we may appoint for this work. They have officers. When the apostle Paul addresses the church in Philippi, he addresses that church in this way. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. There were saints, there were spiritual leaders, overseers, elders, shepherds, and there were deacons. So the church has officers. It has a treasury. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, when you get together on the first day, lay up as each may prosper. In other words, he's going to take a collection of money. In 1 Timothy 5, the apostle points talks about supporting widows, widows who don't have any family members. They're to be put on the rolls of the church. That means they are to be honored by financial remuneration because the church had a treasury. So, yes, the church is a living organism, but it has organization. It has meetings, it has elections, it has officers, it has a treasury. Now, can you think of any secular organization? The Rotary Club, the Lions Club, where any one of us can just walk in, plop ourselves down at one of their meetings, and expect to vote, expect to derive whatever benefits they offer, no questions asked. I don't think so. I mean, try doing that, right? And they'll probably be very polite and say, well, sir or, or madam, uh, you know, we're an organization here, and you know, we'd love you to be a part, but uh, you know, here's, here's a, a, a flyer. This is what we're about. Here's an application form. You can apply and, and you know, request membership, and then we will review it, and then we will, we will um, you know, consider having you become a member. You don't just plop down and all of a sudden assume that I'm a member of this organization because I'm here. No. And friends, if that's true of secular, worldly organizations, how much more should that be true of the church of Jesus Christ, where we're dealing with eternal matters? And so, the fact that the church has organization points to the need for a formal attachment to it. Reason number five. The responsibilities and blessings of church life point to committed church membership. We've talked about this often. There's a Greek word, alelon, and it's translated in the New Testament, one another. And it fleshes out our responsibility to one another in the church. And there are, I think, upwards of 30 of these one another 
responsibilities and privileges. If it was another context, I would ask you to come up with some, but I'm just going to rattle some of these one another's off. Love one another. Serve one another. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together with one another. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. Comfort one another. Forgive one another. Confess your sins to one another. Do not neglect to show hospitality to one another. 1 Peter 4. Build one another up. Galatians 6. Restore one another. Admonish one another. Accept one another. You see, these are responsibilities that are given to all Christians toward one another. And friends, we cannot carry these things out to every Christian in the world, can we? There are millions of Christians in this life we will never even meet, never even become acquainted with. And so if we're going to fulfill these one another duties, we can't have just a casual and occasional interaction with others. It calls for commitment and and commitment to a particular local church family where we can carry out these things. Further, there's the call to use your gift, 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, employ it for one another as good stewards of the literally multicolored grace of God. He who speaks, the oracles of God, he who serves by the power which God supplies, speaking gifts, serving gifts. We each have, each have at least one spiritual gift that you are to use. Now, you can't use that gift generally at a distance It's not going to be effective. Your gift is not going to be useful if you have only occasional, casual relations. The use of your gift calls for close-knit and committed church family relations. So I'm saying that the fellowship duties and privileges require a level of steadfast commitment to a body of believers. I haven't gotten to the strongest arguments yet, though, and here's one of them. The fact of pastoral accountability points to committed church membership. Acts 20, verse 28, where Paul has gathered the elders in the city of Ephesus, and he's talking to them and giving them direction. And he says, among other things, this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Elders, pastors, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers over a particular flock and you need to be on guard for all the flock over which the Spirit has made you overseers. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And then 1 Peter 5, 2 calls elders to, quote, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. And then Peter says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Here's the picture. And I'll use myself as an example because I'm an overseer. I'm an elder. I'm a shepherd. I am going to give account someday to Jesus Christ the chief shepherd, for how well I have shepherded the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made me 
and overseer. Do you think that's a weighty matter? Do you think that ought to be on my conscience? That I'm going to answer to Jesus, the chief shepherd, the one who shed his blood for his people. And I'm going to give account to him for how well I have cared for the sheep over which I have been placed as a shepherd. You bet that's weighty. And it weighs on my conscience. But here's the question that it begs. I need to know who my flock is. Don't I? If I'm going to give account to Jesus for whom my flock is, I better well know who my flock is, for whom I'm responsible. I don't want to have to come before Jesus, and Jesus now calls me to account for how well I have represented Him to His beloved people, and say, Lord Jesus, I, I just wasn't sure who the flock was. We kind of had people coming and going all the time at, at the church, and some people came every week, and some people came once a month, and some people only showed up Christmas and Easter. Lord, I wasn't sure who my flock was. Do you want to be in my shoes if I have to answer that way? I don't think so. I need to know who my flock is. Well, how do I determine that? Am I the flock of every Christian? Am I the pastor or shepherd of every Christian in the world? No. Can I appoint myself a shepherd to somebody? No. You see, the, this, the flock over which I am a shepherd needs to be defined. And it's a two-way street. I need to know that the ones I'm shepherding are sheep. God hasn't called me to shepherd goats. He's called his shepherds to shepherd sheep. So I have to have a way of knowing that you're a sheep. Plus you, as a sheep, have to commit yourself to me as one of your shepherds. It's got to be a two-way commitment, right? I don't appoint myself a shepherd. I don't assume that I'm a person's shepherd unless I'm sure that they are a sheep with a testimony, and they need to tell me, I want you to be one of my shepherds. There needs to be some transaction, some way of ascertaining and defining who the flock is, so I can know for whom I'm responsible, and then let that weigh on my conscience in preparation for answering to Jesus for the flock of God over which the Holy Spirit has made me. An overseer. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? So put yourself in my shoes. The flock needs to be defined. It can't have fuzzy edges. But seventhly, and sort of the flip side, there's the need for believers to be under pastoral oversight. That also points to committed church membership. See, there's the need for me as a pastor to know who my flock is and who it isn't. And by the way, I remember preaching this at another church, Clint remembers, where it was a church, they said, you know, we have a lot of people coming, and, uh, but a lot of people haven't joined. And there were a lot of farmers in that church. And I gave this illustration. Now, you farmers, you, you dairy farmers, you have cows. Who do you milk every, what cows do you milk every night? Do, who, whatever cows wander into the barn that night? You know, and some of your cows may go next door and other neighbor's cows come in. You barn, whoever comes into the barn, I'll just milk them. I said, no. You got those, those cows marked. They're labeled on their ears. And you have a fence up. You know whose cows are yours and whose cows are your neighbor's. And if your neighbor's cow comes over into your pasture, you return him. 
You don't just milk cows willy-nilly. You know who your cows are as a farmer. Well, I need to know who my sheep are as a shepherd. But conversely, the need for believers to be under pastoral oversight points to committed church membership. Here again, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders, submit to them. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. By, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate, literally know those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instructions. Did you hear that? He's talking to the church and he says, I, I request that you know those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you. Christians have men who have charge over them in the Lord, under Christ. So just as pastors need to be able to answer the question, who makes up my flock? Every Christian needs to be able to answer the question, what pastors, overseers, shepherds, are keeping watch over you in the Lord? What shepherds have charge over you in the Lord? Now a Christian says, well, Jesus... Well, that's a good answer. He is the truly good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. But Jesus himself said that's not good enough. He himself has put human shepherds under him to shepherd you, right? Of course, we want to have Jesus as our shepherd. He's our perfect shepherd. But under Jesus, he has assigned human fallible men to have charge over his people in him. So it's a very fair question to ask any Christian. So, what shepherds are watching over you in the Lord? What shepherds, what human pastors are going to give account for your soul to the Lord Jesus? And if you're going to be true to the word of God, you need to have an answer for that, right? Eighthly, and this is really crucial, The exercise of the keys of the kingdom points to committed church membership. Keys of the kingdom. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16. And we'll try to explore this idea of the keys of the kingdom. If that's strange language to you, you especially ought to pay attention because this is very, very crucial. In Matthew 16, beginning at verse 15... Jesus is asking, you know, who do men say that I am? And he asks the twelve, who do you say that I am? This was one time that Peter got it right. (laughs) He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirmed him. Peter, blessed are you. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father was in heaven. Then listen to what Jesus says to Peter. Verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What in the world is that talking about? Peter's got a set of keys. And with those keys, he binds or he looses. What's that about? Turn to John chapter 20 and verse 23. I think we have a, a key statement that interprets that. John 20 and verse 23. Again, Jesus resurrected now. 
says this to his disciples. Verse 23 of John 20. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven then. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Whoa, weighty words. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain them, they're retained. Well, should we all be Roman Catholics? You know, should we all start, some of us go back to the Catholic confessional and say, Father, I've sinned. It's been, you know, a long time since my last confession and spill my sins out so he can tell me some prayers and forgive my sins. Should we all be Roman Catholics because of this? No. Only God can forgive sins. So what does Jesus mean by saying, whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven? What does he mean, that they can forgive sins? No. As John Calvin, and I'm sure others have said, this is a declarative authority. We go out and preach the gospel. Somebody says, I believe. It makes sense to me. I'm a sinner. I'm under the wrath of God. I need a Savior. I believe that Jesus came and died for my sins. I'm putting my trust in Jesus alone for forgiveness. Then, on the authority of the Word of God, we can say, on the basis of your confession, your sins are forgiven, right? I'm not forgiving them. Only God does that. But I'm declaring them forgiven based on their faith in Jesus. That's the authority he gave to the apostles to declare that people were forgiven or not based on their reception of or rejection of the gospel. You following that? Nod your heads to help me. You see that, right? It's a declarative authority. The keys of the kingdom. Now come back to Matthew 18. The same keys of the kingdom that were given to Peter as representative of the apostles to declare men's sins forgiven or not based on their belief or rejection of the gospel, those same keys are now given to the church. In Matthew 18, 15 to 18, it's the process of church discipline. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've won your brother. Case closed. If he doesn't hear you, take one or two witnesses so that by the mouth of two or three, every word may be confirmed. Uh-oh, if he, if he digs in his heels, he's clearly sinning, but he refuses to repent. You've got to take the next step. Tell it to the church. And now we are where? In... Um, Verse 17, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. That's what we call excommunication. That's biblical church discipline where a person is put out of the church because of their refusal to repent. Then look at the next verse. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Same language, keys of the kingdom. Not given to the apostles, but given to the entire church. What does it mean? It means that if this person who has sinned refuses to repent, Christians sin, but they repent. You don't get kicked out of the church for sinning, you get kicked out of the church for sinning and refusing to repent. And if you're not repenting, that's not the mark of a Christian. And so you have a person who's clearly sinning, breaking the law of God, and yet refusing to repent, then the church uses the keys and binds that person's sins to him and says, friend, until unless you repent, your sins are bound to you. And they open the back door of the church and say, you must not continue taking your place among the confessing church. And they're put out of the church. But the same keys that open the back door 
binding a person's sins to him are the keys that open the front door and loose the person's sins and basically say, because of your faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven, your sins are loosed from you. We open the front door, we welcome them in and say, brother, sister, be part of us. Here's the point. The authority of the keys of the kingdom are given to the church. What is that authority? It is the authority to recognize, to hear, and to validate a person's testimony of their faith in Jesus. And to publicly recognize them as a Christ believer. And to welcome them into the visible community of God's people. That's the authority of the keys. I'm a pastor. I don't have a set of the keys. The whole church is given the keys of the kingdom. What does that mean? It means that every Christian, if they're going to obey the words of Jesus, needs to submit his or her testimony to the church, a a, a local body, and they need to exercise the keys of the kingdom and based on that person's testimony, open the door and welcome them and validate that person's testimony to the world. Just like when a person doesn't act like a Christian and they, they don't repent, the church uses the keys and opens the back door and say, you're misrepresenting Jesus because you're not repenting. And we have to let you out the back door until you repent. Then you can come back in. That's the authority of the keys of the kingdom. And so it is a, an, a fair question to ask any Christian, what church has recognized your testimony and used the keys to welcome you in. And God forbid, should you go south in your life or in your doctrine, what church is going to love you enough and love Jesus enough to put you out because you're misrepresenting Jesus? Every Christian needs to be able to answer. And if the person says, well, I'm not in the church, they can't put me out because I'm not in, then those words of Jesus are meaningless to you and you're not obeying him. You know, I heard James White say something interesting about Ravi Zacharias. Tragic hypocrisy revealed about that apologist. James White had this insight. There's no evidence that he was ever accountable to a local church. Never sent by a church. Never met the qualifications of an elder of a church. Never under the oversight of a local church. And who knows what kind of sexual escapades he was performing when he was months away without accountability. Had he been in a church properly recognized, perhaps some of that would have been discovered earlier. And you want a real bend over the nail, turn to 1 Corinthians 5. We're almost done. I only have one more after this. But 1 Corinthians 5, it's, it's a context of church discipline. A man is being put out of the church because he's being immoral. He's living with his stepmother. And he's, he's to be driven out of the church. And we read this in 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, friends, there are two categories here. There are those within and those outside. The Greek words are simple. Esso and exo. Exo, like the exit. Exo, the outsiders. Esso, those who are within. There are only two classes of humanity here. God judges those outside. 
People live immorally out there. We don't, we don't put them out of the church. They're not in the church, right? We don't judge those outside. God judges those. But you are to judge those who are eso, inside. Now the question is, what are they inside of? They're inside the local church. You're either an outsider or an insider. And if you're an insider, what are you inside of the local church? Who are the outsiders? When you cross-reference that, you have Colossians 4, 5. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders. Outsiders are unbelievers. In Mark 4.11, Jesus said, I, I tell you, I explain the parables to you. Those who are outside get everything in parables. They're unbelievers. An outsider is an unbeliever. So friends, there are only two categories of humanity here, according to Paul. There are outsiders, unbelievers, and there are insiders. And what are they inside of? the local church, because that's the whole context. A man is being put out of a local church. Now, does that mean that if a person isn't a member of a church, he's not saved? No, of course not. The thief on the cross died before he could be part of a church. The Ethiopian eunuch was saved and baptized. Who knows where he went back to? There are people in prison who can't be part of a church. But I'm saying, biblically, it's an anomaly. If you are able to be part of a local church... You need to be. Because if you're not an outsider, an unbeliever, you're an insider. And what are you to be inside of? The local church. One more brief argument in favor of this church membership. The church, as a recognizable, definable group, points to committed church membership. The church, as a recognizable, definable group, points to committed church membership. In Acts 2.47, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Adding to their number, somebody was counting. In Acts 4.4, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Somebody was counting. Acts 5.11-13, when Ananias and Sapphira, they're not merely excommunicated, they are what? Executed. For lying to the church. They are killed. And then it says in Acts 5.11, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. My point is, there's the rest and there's them. There's the people and there's them. The church was circumscribed. They knew who the church was and who was outside the church. The church was a clearly definable, recognizable group. It didn't have fuzzy edges. There was the rest, and there was the them. They knew who was in, and they knew who was out. That points to the fact that the church is a definable group, and you need to be defined as one who is within the ranks of a local church. So there we have it. I hope you're convinced that the church is important to you as a Christian. It's important to God. The church is inseparably bound up with the work of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the family of God, the truth of God, the glory of God, the wisdom of God, the salvation plan of God. And if those things are important to you, the church must be important to you. And I hope that you can see from the scriptures that our attachment to the church is not to be loose and casual and occasional and informal, but devoted, committed, 
and even formal. What that means is that every Christian needs to find a good church. What is a good church? A church that is faithful to the Word of God, one with faithful, loving shepherds, one with sound doctrine and healthy internal life of growing love for one another, committed outreach to the lost, both near and far. And when you find such a church, you need to join it. Don't expect perfection. It is not perfect. No church is perfect. But join it and seek to make it better. Don't be a mere casual attender. Don't be a mere committed attender. Submit your testimony to the church so they can exercise the keys of the kingdom and recognize, yes, you're a brother, you're a sister. And then using the keys, open the front door and welcome you in. And in so doing, validate your testimony and say to the world, this one is one of us. He belongs to Jesus. She belongs to Jesus, as do we. You know who we are. We're clearly defined and set apart from the world, even if it means persecution. You need to know who to persecute and who to afflict with suffering. Here we are. Here we are. And we're unashamed of that. And so, I know I'm preaching to the choir in many cases, but... um, I think it's important as you deal with people who, yeah, the church, yeah, yeah, kind of take it or leave it. No, you can't. (laughs) No, there's not a verse that says, thou shalt be a member of a local church, but I hope these lines of reasoning are compelling and cogent. I think they should be. But if anybody is here and, you know, this is kind of rolling off you like water off a duck's back. Yeah, so what? Church, smirch. It may be because you really haven't yet committed to, to Jesus. If you're not yet a Christian, your first order of business is not to join the church. Your first order of business needs to be with Jesus. It needs to be to recognize, you know what, I, I'm a sinner separated from God. You know how the Bible describes sin? Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his or her own way. It's turning our back toward God. I'm going to live the way I want to live. I'm going to do what I want to do for my own pleasure, for my own glory, in my own time. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. That's the essence of sin. Turning on our back on the God who made us and made us for himself. And you need to get to the place where you see, I, I, I don't like that. I don't, I'm under the wrath of God. I'm miserable, separated from the God who made me for himself. I have no purpose, no meaning, no direction, no ability to do what is right. And you come to believe that God sent Jesus who loved you so much that he died on a cross to pay for your sins so that by believing in him, God will take away all your sins, put them on Jesus and forgive you and save you and destine you for heaven. That's the first order of business. Come to Jesus. He will become your most precious possession. And then, then you will love what he loves. You will love his people. You will love his church and you will want to be a part of it. Let's pray. Father, insofar as I have represented your truth accurately, commend it to our minds and consciences uh, to walk in its light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.